0: Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 311 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Clint Watts. He's a former U.S. Army officer and FBI special agent who's testified before Congress multiple times on issues relating to terrorism and cyber warfare. He's currently a Robert A. Fox Fellow in the Foreign Policy Research Institute's program on the Middle East, as well as a senior fellow at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at George Washington University. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News. And now, here's our interview with Clint Watts. All right, so we're here with Clint Watts. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about is these conversations you had with a terrorist named Omar Hamami. So how did you first start talking with him?
1: Actually, I think Omar – I'd have to go back and look, but he may have talked to me first. Um, This is going back probably 2012 13 was he would pop up on the scene, uh, and because he was such a narcissist, as as goes with jihadi terrorists, they really like to read about themselves or check themselves out on the internet, and he had pinged me, I believe, or I had seen a post that the account had put up, and I had commented on it, and that's kind of how it got started, and Omar wasn't just reaching out to me. He was reaching out <laughs> to lots of Western journalists. He wanted to get in the news. Uh, Because he was having trouble Uh, And so, yeah, it was kind of one of those Fluke things that happened But uh, he picked me out of the crowd, I think Because he knew what my background was
2: And he was an American
1: Yeah, yeah, he's originally from Alabama And so uh, He grew up in Alabama Uh, He had, you know, he originally Was just uh, adherent to Islam And was, you know, curious about the religion Was trying to be uh, Very strict in his practice And he slowly got further and further in line with sort of Al-Qaeda's message. This is after 9-11. And so from there, he went to uh, Toronto, Canada, actually, and and lived in a Muslim community, a a lot of Somalis around. Then from there, he went to Egypt, and he was studying the Quran. He went to Islamic school and was trying to get more in tune with his faith in in, uh, Cairo. And then from there, he made the jump to Somalia. So he's one of the more fascinating cases, not only because of that trajectory that he took, but he joined uh, the precursor to Shabab, which was called the Islamic Courts Union uh, or known as ICU. And so he took that trajectory mostly because he was learning about it on the web. He didn't really have like a tight, close network to him uh, that brought him into it. So it's that, you know, pre-social media Internet era. And then when he got to, you know, Somalia, uh, he, he integrated into that group, which wasn't necessarily an Al-Qaeda affiliate at the time and that ICU really then later became uh, al shabaab and that's that's really when you know he was fully ingrained in the terrorist network until he uh, he was on the outs with the group.
2: Well you mentioned that he was really narcissistic and that's something I guess I hadn't really appreciated until I read your book was how many of these guys were motivated that they wanted to be social media stars. It was like this was as close as they could get to being Justin Bieber or something.
1: Yeah and that's a you know that's a difference I think if on average, between Westerners and a lot of times the more uh, typical terrorists that people think about that might come from the Middle East or North Africa is that they came to it or became aware of it either because of the internet or increasingly through social media as it came online. And so part of jihadi sort of culture is you want to be a martyr for your faith. And the best way to you know do that is to Get on social media, really. You know, over time, if you can advertise for yourself, it makes you a bigger hero. And from the terrorist group perspective, on average, they like that because it really broadcasts the brand internationally and it creates people that can rally for the recruits. I think that's always been one of the big things, even going back to the days of suicide bombers, was if you didn't have a martyrdom video about the suicide bomber, then why would anyone would want to be a suicide bomber? Like part of, you know, the achievement of Dying for your cause is also the notoriety in your family, your community uh, of dying for your cause. And so for these guys, it was very important for a lot of them, particularly the Europeans and Americans in these groups, to to broadcast what they were doing, that they had taken the step uh, to be there. And that's because they had watched this uh, in in large part on social media.
2: Yeah. And then another thing that I never really knew before is, you know, after 9-11, you would hear all this stuff about Osama bin Laden's videos. And you say that actually they were really boring.
1: Oh, they're miserably boring, at least from my perspective. But, you know, if you watch his interviews, he was good for a 1990s interview, meaning that he was engaging and he talked the talk and he was emblematic. But from a a young recruitment perspective, uh, his videos were stale, you know, compared to what we see today from like the Islamic State's propaganda machine. So when you watch him, you're like, wow, this is an older man talking about theology. It'd be like a preacher, you know, in an American context. And it would go on for a really extended period. So I just increasingly came to the belief that when the social media era hit, no one really has the time to sit down and watch 30 minutes or 40 minutes. They also, if you're going to recruit internationally, like international foreign fighters, You have to talk in their language. Bin Laden was more of a purist. It's very difficult from different from the Islamic State where he wanted to talk in Arabic and only Arabic because that was the language of the Quran. Whereas the Islamic State started translating everything into multiple languages or subtitling so that the world could get involved in it. They could draw from new audiences. So it doesn't surprise me in social media with attention spans getting shorter, social media coming on. You can't really upload 40-minute clips or, you know, expect people to, to watch them. And so really his, his sort of medium, which he triumphed, you know, which was television, uh, really was, you know, hurting him over time. It was hard for him to connect with the younger audience.
2: Right. And so then you mentioned that this guy, Omar, re- is reaching out to you and other Western experts. And then what was your goal in talking to him? What were you trying to accomplish?
1: Yeah. So I, I was in a debate at first. I was like, should I do this or not? You know, I I know this person to be a terrorist, you know, on the other side. I know he's on the most wanted list or was coming up on the most wanted list. He was notorious on YouTube. And so I debated about it. And I watched a lot of other academics sort of talk about, well, maybe we can turn his thinking and make him realize he made a bad choice. And I just never believed that, you know, at all. I, I, it's very hard over Twitter Remember, this is 2011 to 14, you know, when this countering violent extremism, maybe we can help these poor souls out, you know, sort of talk was very big. And I just didn't buy into it. I I didn't think that this long distance medium actually was something where you could bring people to your view. And so I was like, what if I did something different? And what I really wanted him to do was basically say that what he thought he was getting into was not what he got into, because I always saw foreign fighter recruitment. To travel to another country and join a terrorist group just based on what you see on social media is a huge leap. And so if you can get out into the public space, hi, I went and joined a terrorist group and this was my experience and it did not go well. I thought that was a huge win, you know, for just everyone in the world to see that, Okay, the terrorist fantasy isn't what I thought it was going to be. And at the same point, I wanted him to basically say that the ideology, not that it was bankrupt for him to turn on his own beliefs, but to just say it's not what you think it is, and that there were fractures in between al-Qaeda, al-Shabaab, and some of these uh, outlying groups. Because in the West at that time, it was all the charts were, here's bin Laden and al-Qaeda, and there was a lot of lines drawn down like a pyramid. and It was like all these groups report to bin Laden. I just never saw it that way. And Omar, my my conversations with him, he really confirmed that for me, which it's a much more loose Sort of social network than it is really a, a top-down command structure like we think of the military.
2: I heard you say I think that if you join one of these terrorist groups, that your odds of being killed by a fellow terrorist are much higher than your odds of being ca- killed by the American military or some other force like that.
1: Yeah, I think if you're a Westerner, that that's definitely the case. Uh, large part that one that can just send you off to be a suicide bomber. Uh, you know, if you're a pain to the group. Uh, That can always be the case. The other thing is when these groups fall on hard times, you know, so whether it's the Islamic State post peak or or Shabab uh, post peak when they're on the retreat, these fractures always, you know, emerge. And, And the fractures generally come down to local tribal folks that are in these organizations versus the foreign fighters, you know, that have come and joined because the foreign fighters are in it for this ideological vision, whereas the local fighters that come to these groups are more in it for. Their family, their friends, their tribe, you know, their turf, their own well-being. And so those incentives are misaligned. And, you know, as these fractures break out, I think pretty consistently you can see with these terrorist groups when, 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 the, you know, it waxes and wanes, once it goes to the wane, then you start to see this infighting. You're just as likely, particularly in Africa, I think, to be chewed up by one of your own fellow fighters as you are to some counterterrorism force uh, that's out there.
2: You know, one time I heard a a guy, he owns a business, and he said one thing that this business could never survive is if everybody in the business knew how much everyone else was being paid. And you say it's kind of the same thing with these terrorist organizations, that once the United States started seizing their records and making them public and people saw the internal workings of the organizations, that they really started falling apart.
1: Yeah, and that was happening, you know, even before the records came out, the Al-Qaeda employment contract, I believe it came out 2006, if I, if I remember right. But, you know, it showed that, hey, we're going to make payments to people who have more kids or less kids and based on what region they're from. And we're going to basically give a cost of living adjustment and their bias in it. And so that bias is very, very hard. For people in the ranks to get their heads around, uh, no one wants to be treated unequally. Even if they all say they're in it for the religion, ultimately it doesn't feel good if you're the guy who's working just as hard as the next guy and you're getting paid one third as much, or you know, or you because you didn't have as many kids, or maybe you can't have kids, or maybe you're not married, you're receiving less vacation time. So that is a wedge that drove in there, and some of the first. Uh, you know, Al Qaeda defectors, uh, that came out of the ranks, this is even, you know, in the 9 11, pre 9 11 time period, were upset because they thought they weren't treated equally or fairly by, by the leadership. Uh, and that's o- almost always the case, whether it's organized crime or, or terrorist groups. When you get in there and everybody looks at the bureaucracy of the violence they're administering, uh, even the adherents, they tend to, to want to break from the group over time, or they lose interest if they don't think they're being treated fairly.
2: And I guess we should make it clear that you have a background in government, but at the time that you're having these conversations with Omar, you're out of the government. You're just acting as a private citizen.
1: Yeah, I was a consultant. I did, did almost, I think, all of it from one iPhone and iPhone 1 originally that I had, and then uh, my laptop. And at the time I was working on all sorts of just consulting jobs. You know, I was based in Boston during the Omar period. And it was just fascinating. I, you know, I started the blog and I was like, this is just a way for me to write now about terrorism because I don't have real work, you know, in the space. <laughs> yeah, I'm a management consultant at the, during that one year, that pivotal year. And I would do terrorism analysis sort of ad hoc, you know, here and there. But I, that was the, my first sort of period of being in the far reaches and, and it was interesting that I, I could do a lot more of my own research. And while I was, you know, not making a salary I would like to make, at least I felt like I was working on things that I wanted to work on. So I, I think that also speaks to, you know, one of the chapters that I wrote, which was kind of how the bureaucracy of the government works, which is why can't the government for all of its resources sort of do similar things. Sometimes they can, by the way, I'm I'm not, You know, there are great people in the government, but I felt it very constraining. I would imagine a lot of people that do, you know, deep research, academics that work for the government feel the same, you know, constraints. So it was always fascinating that the more I wrote outside the government, the more the government paid attention to me. And the more I wrote inside the government, the less anybody paid attention to me. So it was always weird that how that shook out.
2: Right. I want to come back to the what the government could be doing better, because there's a lot in the book about that. But just to finish up the stuff with Omar. So you were actually talking to him for two months, you said, before you actually started kind of pushing him on anything, just making friends with him, basically, for two months.
1: Yeah, I would push him occasionally, you know, mostly through blog posts, because what I was using my conversations with Omar for, which I tend to do on Twitter, whether it's Russia, you know, terrorists or whatever, is to get a sense Almost uh, from like informal in interviewing, you know, very public interviewing, what people are thinking or what their motivations are, or how they see the situation. And uh, it's usually called like a comparative perspectives project, you know, from a research discipline. And so I just wanted to know okay, what do you think is going on? Why do you think I'm wrong? And so once I got an assessment that was up there, I would post it, you know, on my blog site, uh, which was just a WordPress blog. But then they would read that and they would want to tell me what was wrong. So what's always interesting in social media, whether it's terrorists or academics or whoever, if you get to a point where you're like asking for their opinion, they want to stop. But as soon as you uh, post something, you know, a summary or whatever, they're quick to tell you when you're wrong. This is that (laughs) antisocial aspect of social media. And so it became a very effective way. I just write up kind of what my thoughts were or what I was thinking And they would come right back to me, uh, you know, with their take on it in an open way as well, which meant other people could join in. So uh, it was rewarding. And it really led to after Omar was kind of out of the picture, you know, understanding how the Islamic State was going to overtake Al Qaeda uh, and really informed my thinking on that.
2: Well, yeah, because he he gets out of the picture because he ultimately gets hunted down and and murdered by fellow Al-Shabaab members. Um, right. What, what was that like for you? Just how did you feel when that when you found out that you this guy you'd been talking to um had been had been killed?
1: Well, I think the first thing was it's exactly what I thought was going to happen. I, I I knew the terrorist group would kill him. Shabab had and Omar documented it very well. Um, Shabab had been hunting him for a long time, and so it was bound to happen eventually. I always thought I was hopeful instead that he would either turn himself in or you know one of the tribes locally would turn themselves turn Omar in to the government and that he would just face trial cuz i i saw it more useful i i couldn't fully flesh it out on twitter but i felt like Omar kind of knew deep in his head that he had chosen a, a less than optimal path and he was kind of getting into this devout phase, maybe, and was willing to move away from violence, but, you know, didn't really have a pathway for it. And so I was hopeful that he would be alive. So I was disappointed when he was killed, although not surprised. Um, and I also, you know, despite having these public conversations with him, I didn't have a lot of remorse. You know, I felt like he had picked his own path. And, you know, about a week before, he had done an inter- interview with uh Uh, Harun Maruf, and I had listened to it. Uh, He'd done that interview over the phone, and it was fascinating how steadfast he was in his belief that the only way was Sharia and Islamic state, and if we have to kill for it, then so be it, you know, despite having very casual conversations with Westerners or even sort of pining for America. And so, yeah, it was just strange. I didn't feel like sad or remorse. I was disappointed that I saw an opportunity with Omar that he could inform other Americans that this isn't what it's cracked up to be. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, you mentioned that you thought trying to change his mind about that sort of stuff would, would would just not be fruitful. I was curious what you think. I don't know if you know this guy uh, Majid Nawaz. Um, he wrote a book called Radical, um, but he was in right. prison in Egypt for a while. Uh, he was a member of a not a not a violent but a, an extremist Islamic organization, and he says that when he was in prison in Egypt, that he read Animal Farm. And that he thought, wow, all, he sort of looked at the people he was associating with and, and thought, wow, if, if these people ever actually came to power, it would be like Animal Farm. And that kind right. of was the first was sort of a turning point for him. And as a as a writer and someone who does a book podcast and everything, I like to think that books could have that sort of power over people. But I was just curious what do you what do you think about that? Would would reading more uh, Animal Farm? Yeah.
1: Well, I agree. In the sense that, you know, most of the people that are recruited the vast majority have only been taught one thing and, and taught it in one way. You know, the, I think the biggest indicator of whether someone will become an international al-Qaeda foreign fighter is if someone in their family was an international al-Qaeda foreign fighter. You know, you know, one leads to the other. Um, and so I, I'm not saying that you can't change people's views. I think as they get older, it becomes a little bit easier, you know, when you're out of those young years. But I think it's very challenging on social media. Um, you know, in 12, 13, 14, you know, going through those years, um, and I think it was 13 predominantly that I was talking to Omar. Uh, it's interesting because the belief was, oh, we can just tweet it out, you know, of these people, we can just hit them with good advertising and they'll change their mind. And I've never found this long distance social media as a way to do that. What I do think is if you can get people in person, or sort of like you're talking about here with some of these reform programs and work over them over a long duration to engage with them, you can de-escalate. And the more intimate you can make that, um, the better. I don't think this widespread mass advertising has any impact on um, de-radicalizing people. And I I think some of the research from, uh, there's a guy named Ross Fournette who does Moonshot CVE, they're doing more one-to-one engagements on social media where they actually are going and talking in a pinpoint way to extremist online, but it's a one-to-one conversation. It's not this let's send a catchy video and then terrorists will want to quit kind of thing. And I think there is some hope for that. Uh, And they're using people that were formers, meaning they were former members of extremist groups who are reaching out to people they think are vulnerable to being recruited. And so, I think that is a more successful formula, and it's come from learning from this experience, you know, from 9-11 to uh, ISIS, essentially. So I think there's some positive things, but uh, I would agree with you. You know, the more books you can get, the more ideas you can get people exposed to, uh, the better the chance that you can actually bring them back from that more violent edge.
2: Now, when you're talking about these one-on-one interactions, is that over uh Twitter or it would be over FaceTime or something cuz it seems like if you can hear someone's voice and see their face that's maybe more effective.
1: Yeah, it, the way I understand it and you definitely need to, you know, dig more into it now cuz I saw it a few years ago but it was over Facebook, so it was, you know, sending people direct request to have a talk with them. Um you know, on a directed one-to-one basis. And I think that's much more fruitful. And then it would expand, you know, if you if you got the communication go, and then you move on to, you know, FaceTime or even in-person meetings. And I think that's the most effective way, which is to use social media as a bridge to get to the real world, not as one or the other.
2: Right. So so, so you have this, all this experience working with these sort of Islamic radicals, and then you become aware or you become more aware of these seeming Russian agents uh, operating right. on social media. Could you talk about how did you first become, how did that sort of first come to your attention?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. The Russian thing came to me rather than me seeking it out. Uh, and that's always been one of the things that gets a little misunderstood, you know, in the public space is that I had written an article. It was about uh, the situation in Syria. And when I had written that article and it was at Foreign Affairs, I started getting trolled pretty heavily um, with the accusations. You know, in generally the accusations were Clint Watts, an Al Qaeda supporter. He's an ISIS supporter. Um, you know he backs violence. Uh, you can actually go check my Wikipedia page, and the same conspiracy <laughs> still there to this day. And it's kind of fascinating. I was like, man, why would people think this? Because my pitch was maybe we should try and reach out to some of these Islamist groups in Syria, since we're not going to deploy troops, and we don't want to just you know always use hard power. This was the soft power era, you know, of Obama administration. And that's where we got onto it. And the pattern was just very, very different. And, you know, having watched social media for many, many years before that and how extremists, you know, acted on it, this was just different. It was way better organized. It was more focused. Uh, I was more persistent. And you could tell that there was something or someone behind the scenes that was directing it. And so that's kind of how I got onto it. And uh, two old colleagues that i had always worked with on projects or just for fun we had done um, you know research efforts um, spotted it as well and so when we started watching this we all kind of were looking at each other like this just doesn't make sense this has got to be something different and something much better than we were seeing with extremist
2: well you said that kind of at first they would sort of try to cozy up to you and make friends with you and gently nudge you toward their positions
1: yeah, there's a couple, you know, I always use the three H's. The hecklers, which are just, you know, usually people call them trolls, which are just trying to oppose you, you know, in your opinion and trying to push you. And the idea isn't necessarily, to, again, to change your mind. I think this is the smartness of the Russians. They're not trying to change your mind. They're just trying to get you to quit talking. You know, they want the user experience to be so miserable that you will you will walk away <laughs> You know, from the platform and it works a lot of times and they're not the only ones that do that there's there's lots of activist groups that use similar approaches the honeypot situation was different it was people uh we would see the attractive looking you know women out there but these were more political partisans who wanted to buddy up to you and create a one to one relationship and the goal was to influence or hack so it can happen a couple different ways one Hey, I want to talk to you about what's going on in Country X or can you believe this news story? Or hey, I want to send you some, you know, information that's only you and I'll know about, and then send a link and that opens the door, you know, for hacking. And that's the third H, which is the hackers behind it. So yeah, I had been approached. I had seen um people be approached as well. I had also received like direct message request. Then if you followed them, they would try and engage you. Uh, and dialogue. And they would also try and bring in other people into that conversation that they thought you would like. So meaning, um, if you're an unknown, you know, in a conversation in a room, you would introduce other people that the target also knows. And they were trying that approach in Twitter, which was pretty fascinating. It's very smart. You know, that's not, it's not something a jihadist is going to do. That's more someone who's got some training and skill, uh, either around political influence or espionage and manipulation. So it's a very different approach. Uh, and I think that's why well, oftentimes you'll hear people, you know, question the sophistication. Uh, I I call it, you know, it's like an advanced persistent threat. They'll use every means available across a wide spectrum of platforms, and they'll use every technique and from easiest to most difficult. Uh, so it was pretty fascinating how they were they were trying this multifaceted way to engage with adversaries and cozy up to some allies online.
2: So you're saying they would, for example, they would make friends with one expert and then they would approach approach you and say, oh, our mutual colleague so-and-so thinks this, what do you, like that sort of thing?
1: Yeah. And then bring you into a group conversation, hoping that either, you know, you'll facilitate the conversation then seeing as like, oh, we're just having an open discussion about foreign policy topic, whatever. Um, but then that allows them to introduce things like, yeah, well, if you guys considered this, that, that's the sort of idea, you know, behind it, which is the basics of all influence. And is isn't necessarily illegal, right? Like, it's about winning people over in an audience space. And so that's the, what I really found fascinating about it was this sort of, the problem, that, the problem they always had was they were too aggressive, ultimately, because I don't know if they're on a clock or or if they have, certain milestones they've got to hit. Hmm. But if you don't engage rapidly in the conversation, then they continue to push the conversation. So it's like the, the eager salesman, you know, that might enter into a dialogue with you. And you're like, why is this person so pushy? And then ultimately, you're like, okay, they really want to sell me something. That's the same sort of dynamic playing out in the social media space.
2: And you say that you were really Aware from the beginning that this could go really badly for you, talking to and about Russia, right? That they could, um, you know, hack you and try to destroy your reputation.
1: Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, that's the standard approach. In fourteen and fifteen, it was kind of like, what if there's no work behind it? You know, I I would pitch um social media writing projects, you know, uh, for terrorism, which like Foreign Policy Research Institute. I would do all sorts of writing. I'm on a stipend there. You know, it's my fellowship. So I was like, what am I going to do with this though? This Russia sort of stuff and why write about it? Um, because if I do, I just know it's going to bring more trolling, more attempts to hack, you know, more heckling, uh, more, you know, discrediting campaigns. So I was at a loss for the first, well, basically all the way up until the Senate hearing. Um, I was at a loss for what to do with it. Yeah.
0: Well,
2: right, because you say that you were trying, that you were aware that this something weird was going on with these these Russians um, attempting to influence people. This and this is now into the lead up to the election, and you were trying to get people to pay attention to this, and just nobody was interested.
1: Yeah, people weren't interested in, in, for a couple of reasons. One, they didn't believe that it would it was making an impact, and I even was skeptical in fourteen all the way into fifteen. It wasn't until Jade Helm. Uh, 2015. That amplification around Jade Helm. That I was like, okay, this is working. You know, Americans are engaging with this content, and they're believing it. And um, that what the American audience is creating a lot of the narratives, but the being amplified and manipulated in ways from afar that they're not really aware of. So do, it was do probably you the summer. Just of explain what,
2: what that is, Jane Helm.
1: Yeah. So Jade Helm, 2015, was a U.S. military exercise. And it was designed to go to the U.S. Southwest. And it's pretty common. The U.S. military will work with locals or will deploy inside the United States to simulate what would it be like to deploy overseas. And it's like a practice exercise. And, you know, at the time, this is when we're, we're doing counterinsurgency around the world. And so this was a pretty standard exercise. But when this conspiracy online really cropped up was, this is the Obama administration deploying the U.S. military to declare martial law in Texas uh, and in the American Southwest. And then, it, you know, got spun into, and they're going to take our weapons. And it was so successful, this conspiracy that, you know, the Texas governor uh, deployed observers basically to make sure that, you know, there was not going to be some martial law declared. And uh there were actual press conferences where U.S. military people have to come out and say, this is what the exercise is, this is what we're doing. And Protesters would show up very much believing this. And that was being amplified at a much, much higher pace uh, than would be normal. And it was due to these Russian influence networks that we have been watching. They were really helping accelerate it. They don't have to create everything. It's more like putting gasoline on the fire. You know, they can really build it into a storm such that a lot more people engage with the conspiracy. That was the first time I really started to question um you know, change the question from is this being effective to how damaging is this to America? And I started getting really concerned about it.
2: And that was an an Alex Jones thing, right? That sounds like his sort of thing.
1: Yeah, Alex Jones was definitely talking about it, but he wasn't the only one. I mean, social media, particularly in the more anonymous platforms uh, like 4chan or Reddit, were were really blowing this out. Um, And it was the first time I saw that sort of information contagion take hold and cause a physical behavior change in the States. Um, And so that's, that's something I was, I, I was very concerned about. And then it became more, I don't know, it seemed more important to me to try and focus on how do I get this into some sort of research effort or into the, you know, public space or start talking about it in a more organized way.
2: You know, it's funny. I lived in Austin um, just out of college and I used to watch Alex Jones. He was on public access TV there. I just I would just watch him for laughs because I, I thought he was so such a clown, you know, um, and right. even, even Good theater. Yeah. And, and even back then, he was talking about how the government was about to come seize everyone's gun. And this was back guns and this was back in 2001. So I'm kind of like, I don't know. I know. Seizing everyone's guns is a big job. You got to come up with a plan and everything. But like, what is taking them so long? I mean, it's been seventeen years. You know, you would think that they would have like could 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 uh, pick the pick up the pace a little bit.
1: That's one of the most important things with conspiracies. Actually, if you're refuting them, is to ask them when and to put a specific time on it. Uh, you know, that way you can actually refute it when it doesn't happen. And and that's you know classic with a lot of the uh, you know end of days sort of conspiracies as well. One way to refute is to be like, okay, when is the end of days coming? If they can't pinpoint it, then that gives you a little bit of leverage to push back on it. And I think with a lot of these conspiracies we see now, it's a good strategy to sort of employ in a very public way.
2: Yeah, I want to mention some things in your book that I didn't know about in terms of this, this Russian campaign. Um, so they, you had Russian agents organizing a stop the Islamization of Texas and a save Islamic knowledge meetings at the same time and place, I guess hoping for an actual physical confrontation between the – Factions they were stirring up.
1: That's right. What the Russian information uh, influence system really understands is combining the real world and the and the virtual world. And whereas in in the U.S. we always kind of look at them as somewhat separate. You know, we'll be like, we want to launch a big social media campaign. Let's do it. And it always doesn't. It doesn't always take off because we're like, well, there's nothing really to this, right? It's just a bunch of ads. What What Russia is very good at doing is creating the provocation they need to advance the narrative they want. And so they successfully do that and and have done it by playing both sides, which means if you want a rally that looks really contentious in the middle of Texas and it's a hotbed issue um, like Islam or immigration or race issues, then if it's not already there, you create it. And so they were very smart to try and create these provocations. And one of the key things they wanted was photographs. So they'd even reach out to people that were participating and be like, hey, not only do we want you to go, please take pictures, you know, so that we can put it up on social media. And so they've done this, you know, they actually got pulled it off in the United States, which I think when I hear the people that are naysayers about Russian influence, I'm like, do you realize they staged real world events in the United States, you know, leading up to the election based on race, you know, religion, uh, these very divisive topics but not only do they do that they're I think they're even more successful in Europe in in getting that going and i always like to talk about montenegro because i think that's a fascinating example of the closer you get to moscow the more aggressive they are and the more of these provocations they use with even deliberate agents the people in texas you know were unwitting they didn't really know where this group came from or why they were showing up or who was behind it but you know overseas uh, in europe they actually do much more of this with actual directed agents, you know, who create these incidents. And so, you know, you don't want to just report on the news. You want to be the news. You want to create the news. And it's very hard then to refute that there isn't something there whenever this provocation has been created. Something they wanted to do, you know, as well during the Cold War, but it was just much harder to bring the synchronization in the United States by doing a provocation uh, through, you know, some agents in the U.S. and then amplifying it when you didn't have Lots of newspapers that were widely read, you know, around the United States. So it's a lot tougher to do. Today they can do it almost at light speed. You know, they just move very, very quickly. And they'll either take provocations that are openly available and then twist it, you know, to fit their narrative, or they've been successful as we see it staging these events and then broadcast them for their purposes. It's, it's pretty complex and, it, and it's really an extra step that most others wouldn't take.
2: Well, you say people are trying to downplay the the impact that this can have. You you say actually that you think that Trump would not have been close to Clinton in the election if not for these Russian efforts. And you, know, you probably saw James Clapper just came out and said the same thing.
1: Yeah, I think at times when Clinton would have pulled away. And of course, I can't prove all of this because we didn't have good polling. You know, I mentioned that in the book. There's no accurate polling going into election day. You know, everybody was off um, pretty consistently, but. There are times where I think uh Hillary Clinton would have pulled away and stayed you know at a safe distance, but the Russia narrative drifted in. the biggest one being that Bernie Sanders got a raw deal from the d n c that entire narrative was powered by Russian hacking uh and it came out right at the worst time you know for the Democrats, meaning during the the convention. Uh, whenever there was another incident that would, you know, hit hard against Trump, you would immediately see more leaking of hacked emails. So the great example is the infamous Donald Trump tape, uh, you know, that came out and within an hour, WikiLeaks was dropping emails, you know, out into the public space and this would divert the narrative. So while all of those still, all of those things could still hurt Trump, um, it didn't hurt him as badly because there was such distraction towards another story, which was always about some version of emails or hacking. And so I think they kept him close. I, you know, at the same point, I don't think on election day, um, they were the only reason Trump won. I think the Comey letter is a huge factor in that. Uh, if you look a week before Clinton was still ahead, you know, by a pretty decent margin. And so to pull out that, uh, you know, to inject that Comey letter in there was probably the last thing that really pushed him, you know, over the finish line. I think it's it's hard to argue anything else. But I think the significant point is that Russia did help keep him there. Um, the campaign utilized a lot of what Russia created in terms of the narrative around Bernie Sanders, the DNC leak, but also in terms of voter fraud and election rigging. That was, you know, they amplified and rebroadcast that into the U.S. information space in a heavy volume. And that that probably disenfranchised a lot of voters as well.
2: Yeah, and, and Trump's behavior through this has just been weird. You know, it's been really, really weird. And th- the thing I keep thinking Makes about is... Makes no sense. <laughs> you know, I, I read um, a book years ago by Vincent Bugliosi, and it was about the O.J. Simpson trial. And he said that he could have gotten a conviction just on the basis of O.J. Simpson's initial uh, interrogation. Police interrogation where they told him that his wife had been killed. And he sort of said, Oh, that's horrible. And he didn't ask what the circumstances were. And he says, You know, anyone who would, any innocent person, that's the first thing they would say is, You know, what, what, what actually happened? Cause they wouldn't know. And I feel like it's the same thing with Trump when they come in and tell him about this Russian hacking. And he, he doesn't say, anything about how do we stop this? Like, as far as I know to this day, he still has never said anything about how do we stop this or done anything. And it's just so bizarre.
1: Yeah, it's unprecedented for a president, regardless of party, you know, it's also weird that he could have just set it aside, you know, the election, and then moved in a very responsible way to say we need to deal with this Russia thing. And I think as a country, we would be much more like, settled with this whole thing. Yeah, you know, it just would not be riling this up and twisting this up in the same way that it is right now. And this is the first example I can see of where a president, once they were elected, did not, you know, move to bring the country together, but instead looked to further divide it, which is fascinating. I think that's what, you know, in the history books, uh, assume we have them for the U.S., as a country in 50 years that will be the look back it's like why didn't this president once elected move to bring everyone together I think the first 44 I would imagine would have tried to do that it's really weird that hasn't happened yet
2: and you say even that didn't Congress allocate 60 million dollars or something to to fight the Russian interference and yes. they haven't and even it, spent it, it it may
1: be yeah I wrote that last that section you know late last year so it may be even be more now I know the State Department has finally sent out some first uh, requests for ideas and funding, uh, which is great. Um, But it's just way too slow. It was Senator Portman, a Republican in 2016. It was actually their office that I actually had my first dialogue with um, before the election on Russia influence because I'd written, you know, written up some articles at that point. And what on earth took two years to get this going? When this is, I mean, imagine if we waited two years after 9/11 to get going on counterterrorism. <laughs> and while you know people didn't die in the same way, I I think ultimately we might see an equivalent impact on our country and, and its well-being. You know, from this, so it's just strange that it took that long and that it's still not really turning. And uh, more importantly, I think we don't see a real strategy. Um, for how to combat Russian, you know, influence. We've seen sanctions, which I think are good. Uh, We've seen some actions be taken almost uh, by force, you know, forced on the president, and he's agreed to it. But there should be, like, a national strategy to, you know, combat Russian influence and the aggression of Putin, and it has just not happened. We've had other strategies. You know, we talk about the opioid crisis. We've talked about Afghanistan for the umpteenth time, but we have not directed... Much effort at all, right? To what just hit us in the face?
2: But you say that when the U.S. We'll come back now to the U.S. government's actions. You say that even when they do spend money, that they suck at this. You say America sucks at information yeah. warfare; absolutely sucks.
1: Yeah, we uh, we just can't we just can't let ourselves you know move forward, and it it has to do kind of like I talk about the message, uh, messenger, and method you know problem, which is we don't really have a message that, that we know we want to push back with. And we super sanitize it. We do it mostly to make internal bureaucrats and the media, the American media happy. So we can't really jab back a terrorist freely the way they jab at us. And so that, you know, limits us. And the same thing with Russia. We would just get we would get our clocks cleaned if we went against Russia right now in the social media space. The second part of it is really who's the messenger for it. You know, President Trump is the most effective Twitter, you know, fighter maybe that'll ever be. And yet he's allowed as and his personal twitter account to do that sort of fighting but our you know social media operators are not allowed to do that in service to our country that's got to change you know we have to loosen it up a little bit i don't think they should behave like the president but we have to give them the ability to answer back in real time and to push real conversation and dialogue and there'll be some failures in it but i think we'll find more successes I think the other part is the apparatus by which we do it, and that's the method part. It doesn't need to be this, let's all come together, whole of government, consensus building, kumbaya, we all want to say democracy is great, back to terrorists, send the tweet. You know, that's kind of how we've gone about it, very much fearful. And to win on the social media battlefield, you cannot fight scared. And that's what I'm still waiting for someone to crack in the U.S. government, and it may never happen which is, are we going to let our people fight? I, I would tell people that are interested in this to look at the Russian embassy in the UK and South Africa, their Twitter accounts. They come out fighting. You know, They try and be funny. They're personable, and they make jabs. That's a great example of how we just would never let our accounts and our people do that.
2: I mean, you kind of suggest, though, in the book that you can do a better job outside the government fighting this kind of stuff than you could from inside, and that just individual citizens need to get involved in this?
1: Yeah, I think the answer from the the United States, if we're not going to let our government relax and sort of pursue this in a deliberate way and support them even, you know, in minor setbacks, then it's going to have to follow the civil society. It'll be democracies. So it could be advocacy groups, uh, pro-democracy groups. Um, I think some of the journalistic, you know, efforts that are out there are effective, and uh, doing this, and it's just citizens, you know, standing up for their own country. And uh, there's been some of this, you know, we've seen some of this um, since the election, but it's just not enough because it's kind of just swarming, you know, and there's no real advocate sort of pushing it forward. There needs to be the physical leadership to help push that forward. I think Americans have this tendency to always look back at the U.S. government and go, how are we going to do this? You should do this, you know, kind of thing. And in this case, I think if if democracies are going to win, it's going to have to be civil society that stands up for itself.
2: You mentioned three proposals in the book that might improve things. You say there should be a virtual nutrition label for news outlets so you can know how reliable it is. Um, You recommend people use the Moment app so they can be aware of how much time they're spending on social media and maybe – curb that if it's too much and you see younger people have uh, gotten on snapchat because it's uh it's the the things get deleted after 24 hours and it's not uh uh, making yourself so vulnerable to someone digging through your whole history and uh, finding stuff to use against you
1: yeah i I think there are lessons to be learned out there it's not all bad and you know i don't hopefully it came through in the book i don't want to just sit and yell at social media companies because I don't think that's fair either. You know, they made platforms that everybody loves to spend lots of time on. So, you know, it's not their fault to try and design a product which you want to use. That's what the products are for. That's how businesses run. I think it's about you know personal responsibility and how can you help the consumer make better decisions. And that's ultimately, I guess, what I'm looking for is if if the consumer is going to use social media, help them have personal responsibility in in their consumption. So the app, you know i i Adam alter's book uh you know on irresistible, I thought it was good about discussing ways to help you understand what you're doing you know on the platform. I think for uh information sources uh filters are essential you know there's a reason why uh you know if if I've learned anything it's you know the only thing worse than no information is too much information it can really be so confusing that you know less beside you know even though you know you have access to more. And so filters aren't all bad. We've kind of come to this uh, social media conclusion, you know, in the mainstream is I don't need a filter. I just need, you know, the truth. I need absolute transparency. Well, does that really make sense? Are you an expert enough in all of these things to understand what you're you're consuming? Like I can be, uh, I'm good at assessing terrorism or Russian disinformation stuff. I'm terrible at assessing climate change because I don't know what those scientific records say. Same thing with information sources. If you can just let the consumer know, hey, this is the source, this is its track record over time, you're totally allowed to read it if you want, but just know that if you read too much of it, you could be misled, you know, and their track record's not really good. I think those sorts of warnings are, are helpful. And that's always what I'm trying to push is more the personal responsibility for the user um, so that they can make better decisions about their own time, their own usage.
2: Well, like you say, that friends of yours will send you articles that they found on RT, and you tell them, you know that that's state-sponsored Russian media. Oh, and they're like, right. what? Not what?
1: Yeah. Well, th- that's the smart part of social media from a state sponsor and influence perspective, which is it plays to implicit bias, meaning you're more willing to take on the ideas or the concepts or the information that's delivered to you from a trusted source. And that trusted source is your friends and family, you know, on these social media platforms, by and large. And so, if they send it, then you, and you trust them, then you're more likely to believe it. And that's what Russia really understood when they started this was RT is very hard to expand through satellite television, and much easier to broadcast through YouTube, where people don't always know that RT stands for Russia Today, that don't know that that producer that's sending it out it actually works for a Russian state-sponsored outlet, and so. That story, whenever, you know, it's confirmation bias, which leads you to click on it because it confirms your belief. And it's implicit bias, which, you know, leads to sharing. And that helps reinforce why you want to read it. Uh, and Russia really understood that, which was get into those, the get into the parties, as they used to say, and the people uh, of your adversary, in you know, integrate with them, and then they're more likely to take on your message. Uh, and they've They've done it really, really well. And I've had the same you know, same come up with even some conspiracy things. You know, everybody everybody falls for fake news or, or it gets, you know, manipulated one way or another. It's happened to me. But there's no real good way uh Snopes can't keep up. Um and so you gotta focus not on the individual content but on the disseminators of that content over time.
2: And you say the the things we have to look forward to in the future. We've got fake audio and video, so you, you'll just watch a video clip of the president saying something, and it's not even real. Um, right. And then machine learning applications, so basically using AI to target people and automate this process of tricking them and heckling them, and so on.
1: Sure. Yeah. So forgeries are the backbone, you know, of Russian influence efforts, but also of other manipulative campaigns, which is. Can you take a kernel of truth and twist it in some weird way? So the kernel of truth is that that sounds like the president's voice. That looks like the president. So I'm going to go with the fact that whatever he's saying must be true. Now, I don't know that that works so much after the Trump administration, because that's kind of (laughs) – there's a lot of things that come out of the president's mouth that are are not accurate. So that may not be the case in the future. But for trusted sources, if you can find a trusted source – that plays to implicit bias. And then if you can take that implicit source and make them say something false, man, you can really power a a false narrative and be almost impossible to stop. Uh, luckily, the fake audio video isn't there yet. You know, maybe it will be, uh, you know, better over the horizon. Now it's still a little bit clunky, but we're already moving that direction. And so it's pretty nerve wracking to watch.
2: I guess I'm just curious a little bit about the experience of writing and publishing this book. You say in the acknowledgments, um, thanks to my agent, Flip Brophy, and my publisher, HarperCollins, both took a gamble on me when many others had passed. Um, Why what, what yeah. do you think it was the challenge getting this book published?
1: Uh, you know, I had this proposal out for a year or so. Um, I modified it a little bit, you know, going in uh, to the meeting with uh, HarperCollins. You know, I'd, I'd had it out there for two years, almost two years. And people were just kind of like, eh. And part of it was the Russia story wasn't there yet. You know, people just weren't interested in it. Uh, and the other part of it is the counterterrorism stuff with social media was, I don't know if it was overdone. You know, people, people, the, the agents that I sort of went and talked to wanted one of two books, even after I testified, they wanted just tell me I want a Russia book in the election, you know, and I, I had no interest in doing that. I, I'm not the foremost Russia expert there. You know, Ambassador mcfall has got a book out. He's the guy you go to to learn about Russia. I mean, he lived there. You know, that's his thing. And same with terrorists. I just thought there had been plenty of ISIS books on the shelf. You know, I didn't want to write about that again. Uh, and I wanted to talk more about, you know, how all bad actors sort of come To these communication environments and use it for their purposes and what the dynamics are that play out. Um, Because hopefully, you know, for people that read the book, they'll see that, you know, chapter two leads to chapter nine, really. You know, the Al-Qaeda experience on social media, you know, internet to social media was really the same as the public's experience. You know, the internet brought everybody together. Social media sort of tore everybody apart. And that was due, you know, to preferences. And that's that populism that's really driving a lot of political and social movements today. Um, and yeah, HarperCollins took a gamble. You know, I gave a different. I didn't want to do a Russia book or a terrorism book, and and they were open to that. So I'm very appreciative to them for for taking it on.
2: Have you had any, or are you expecting any pushback on the book from Russians or from just anyone else?
1: Yeah, I mean, they're not. I imagine they'll find some sort of angle. Uh, you know, they'll find something in it they don't like, and that will be the, the narrative that's advanced. I I mean, I can imagine uh, what's the ones that are always, already out there about me. Clint Watts, fake Russian expert. Uh, he doesn't know. Let me see the data. You've got to see this. I mean, you know, it, it's a, the discrediting campaign is take every aspect about the target break it into a small piece and then refute it. You know, that's the that's the way of subversion uh, as an art. And uh, it's in their text, you know, it's in their playbook. So, um, yeah, and it, it'll be somewhat successful. But uh, one of my goals when I left the FBI the first time, you know, before I came back as a contractor, uh, I was like, man, I, I think I might want to write a book. Um, and so it took me 15 years, but, yeah, I'm happy I got there.
2: Hmm. Um, I thought this was really good. You say when you're arguing with people online, you should ask them under what circumstances would you admit you were wrong and what evidence would convince you otherwise?
1: Right. This is a classic, by the way, of all intelligence analysis instruction in the U.S. government, like if you go through it. And if you're a good intelligence manager, um, you want to make sure that uh, they, your analysts are considering other possibilities. So I still use this in my work today, you know, whatever I'm doing or even in conversations. And I use it as a self-check, like, okay, if I'm wrong, what will that look like? Um, and what will happen? And what should I, what are my indicators of if I'm off? And I think that's a, such a valuable tool for everybody when they're going into an argument or preparing for public debate to understand the other side. Um, so like I'm doing it with North Korea right now, you know, internally in my own mind, I'm like, okay, is the Trump approach really right? You know, when would I agree that maybe it's worked while all others have failed? You know, I, I do that internally. So I think those are critical questions and on social media, a lot of times it'll stop trolls in their tracks. You know, you don't have to state it as formally as I did kind of in the book, but just to push back and be like, kind of like we talked about with conspiracies. So what date will Obama declare martial Mm -hmm. law? You know, Uh, They won't be able to put an answer on it. And so I always think that's, you know, an effective, effective way. And I I had used it during the drone debates, you know, in 2009 and 10. The story was in Yemen, we were using drones and there would be a mass uprising, basically. And there would be blowback, you know, to the U.S. approach to drones. And so I said, when will we see this? And it was very hard for anyone to articulate when that would happen.
2: All right. So we're pretty much out of time, though. I guess the last thing I want to ask you is you say uh, J.B. Berger is one of the best analysts of social media, terrorism, disinformation, dystopian fiction and the television show Lost in the entire world. And yeah. uh, dystopian fiction and television show Lost are the kinds of things we we usually talk about on this show. I was just kind of curious what kind of conversations that you have you've had about it.
1: Oh, you should have him on then for sure. I mean, it's funny. Weisberg and Berger are, are both just brilliant, you know, analyst. And uh, it's funny, Berger used to run one of the, I think the largest blog in the world about the TV show Lost. You know, this is oh, before wow. I met him. And so that's what he, when I first met him, that's kind of what he was known for in the, in the public space. And uh, yeah, he's just a fascinating guy, brilliant on whatever topic he digs into. Um, you know, researches dystopian fiction. He's just got a brilliant mind for these sorts of things. I think that's why he's been, so successful in social media analytics. Uh, And, uh, yeah, I would tell you that should be a guest you should bring on because he can can go from terrorism to disinformation to dystopian fiction and and lost all in one episode for you, I'm sure, and and tie them all together in ways I could never do.
2: (laughs) I mean, are you a fan yourself of dystopian fiction and science fiction kind of stuff?
1: Uh, A little bit, but not primarily. I'm more a fan of well-done stories, you know, like – I really like it when people communicate complex things in an engaging way, uh, if that makes sense. So The Big Short is a great example. You know, who would have got me to ever watch a movie about, you know, credit default swaps? (laughs) Like, that is amazing. If you can do that, that's hard to do. Uh, Same thing as like uh, Christopher Nolan movies. You know, I watched the movie Interstellar again. Not long ago, and they actually talk about fake news in there, which I totally missed the first time. And uh, yeah, that I thought was another great complex story told in a way that I stick with it. Um, so that's what I'm the biggest fan of, I think, regardless of the of the topic.
2: Were they teaching the students in school that the moon landing was fake? Is that what you're talking
1: about? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, you know, I, I kind of just didn't pay any attention to it the first time, but that was in the pre you know, fake news era. So, <laughs> yeah. and I didn't catch it.
2: Oh, it actually, there's one other thing I want to ask. So you also mentioned, the. Uh, you say thanks to the Howard Stern show, uh, for sort of yeah. keeping you saying through all this stuff, I guess I was just curious. Yeah. Um, do you listen to podcasts? Cause that's kind of like radio as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I have gone more and more to podcasts, you know, as it's come online, particularly cause I travel a lot, you know, I'm you know, on airplanes, trains and cars. So I'm always tuning into podcasts. And so, it was funny the Howard Stern Show was kind of my way after you know just staring at a bunch of terrorist beheading videos or you know <laughs> online chats all day or during the Russia days when no one really wanted to talk about it. And I thought I was just wasting my time uh i I would uh you know listen to that show. Uh, on the way home or when I was walking in the neighborhood or something like that. It gave me a little bit of levity. And I I also did it because Howard Stern always complains that no one ever appreciates him or shows him thank you. No one ever says thank you. So I did that deliberately.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. Yeah, and I I can tell from reading this book that there's just a lot of crap you've had to deal with. And I think it's important, um, you know, what you're doing and and writing this book and talking about this stuff. So I want to thank you for that. And yeah, thanks for having me on.
1: Hopefully, people get more you know out of it than just the Russia stuff. That was my fear too. You know, I, I feel like the Russia stuff is essential for you know understanding how influence happens, but there's so much more you know going on in that space too.
2: Yeah, and it's uh, well, I was going to say it's an important book because it just it's sort of a guide in a way to understanding how you're being manipulated and what you can do about it. That is just relevant to everyone. So um, yeah, definitely everyone check out the book. It's called "Messing with the Enemy," and the author is Clinton Watts. So, Clint, thank you so
0: much for joining us.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, and thanks for reading. <laughs>
2: yep.
0: And that was our interview. So, big thanks again to Clint Watts for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So, if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show